Party of five. Yeah, but this was like party of 200. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. This March marks the 223rd anniversary of the birth of the greatest figure in Texas history, Sam Houston. Last year, we did an extensive three-part series on his life, but this year, we're going to take a look at the remarkable lives of his eight children. But first, what's your favorite Texan fruit or vegetable? Hashtag go Texan. <laughs> I'll start. I'm going to go with one of the original fruits or vegetables eaten in Texas. Uh, the Spanish called it the tuna, but we know it as the prickly pear. That is the fruit of the cactus. And it is mm. very sweet and delicious. And uh, you do have to peel them to get the little spines out. But uh, once you do, you have a really kind of a plum-like fruit, and I've had it in a jelly that's absolutely delish. I've had it fresh off the cactus. Ooh. So good. Uh, I think we do a whole. We could do a whole episode on on those darn cactus. <laughs> you know, I was gonna cactuses. cactuses. I was gonna say the ten fifty, uh, um, or as a, a most perfect onion. Uh, best of both worlds. It is a scientific marvel created by the brilliant minds at Texas A&M University. So thank you for that onion. Mm, sweet and spicy. Probably my favorite Texan fruit of all time is going to be the ruby red grapefruit mm. uh, grown down in the valley predominantly. Um, I love it. It's It's a nice sweet variant of the grapefruit it's not as sour as a lot of grapefruits are and on top of that it's used in one of my favorite texan beers of course the uh shiner ruby red uh ruby red bird uh beer that they make um it was a seasonal beer a few years ago and then they decided to make it a a uh, at least an annual thing so it's around all the time and i love it in 1840 sam houston was 47 years old was a national and international hero. He had already been president of the Republic of Texas once and had been married and divorced twice. He was, by the standards of the day, an old bachelor and, as reputation has it, a drunkard. So it came as a great surprise to society at the time when he fell head over heels in love with the 21-year-old daughter of an Alabama planter whom he'd met while traveling in the United States seeking financial assistance for Texas. Margaret Lee was beautiful, intelligent, and witty, but she was also deeply religious from a teetotaler family, so the match was an odd one to be sure. Despite her mother's reservations, Margaret married the dashing hero and took up the task of being the most famous Texan's loving wife. She largely eschewed politics and focused instead on raising her family, having eight children over the next 20 years. Over the years, she also worked on transforming her husband's character. She got him to stop drinking fairly early in their marriage, and after 14 years, finally got Sam to be baptized and join her Baptist church. They were together through another presidency, several trips to the U.S. Senate, and to the governor's mansion, and she was with Sam when he died in Huntsville in 1863. She only survived him by four years when she herself died during a yellow fever epidemic. Her younger children went on to live with her oldest daughter, but all of the Houston children would go on to have fascinating lives of their own. 
The Houston's oldest child was Samuel Jr., born in 1843 while his father was serving his second Texan presidency. He was educated at home and enrolled in the Bastrop Military Institute, but when the Civil War began, he joined Ashbel Smith's Bayland Guards. His father opposed secession and the war, but old Sam was still proud of his boy and observed the unit as it drilled in what today is known as Baytown. Samuel Jr. took part in the Battle of Shiloh and was captured, though he was later exchanged and returned home. After the war, Sam Jr. went to school at Baylor University and studied medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He had a medical practice for several years and later became author and collector of Texas folklore as well as an accomplished artist. Sam Jr. died a widower in 1894 at the home of his younger sister in Independence. Sam and Margaret's first daughter, Nancy Elizabeth, was known throughout her life by her nickname Nanny. Nanny became a talented pianist and inherited her mother's deeply religious nature, becoming a noted Bible scholar. When her mother died in 1867, when she herself was only 21, Nanny and her husband Joseph Morrow took in her five youngest siblings. Besides caring for the five youngest Houston children after both parents were deceased, Nanny and her husband had six children of their own. One of her great-granddaughters was married to 1960s Texas Governor Price Daniel. Second oldest daughter was Margaret, nicknamed Maggie, born in 1848. She married Weston L. Williams, settling in Independence where they had three living children. She took in her oldest brother Sam after his wife's death until Sam's death in 1894. Maggie's own husband died in 1899, and she moved to San Antonio, where she herself became a writer. She enjoyed the company of intellectuals, and one of her best friends was the famous sculptor Elizabeth Ney, who actually is most famous for her sculpture of Sam Houston in the capital, state capital of Texas. When she died in 1906, the flag at the Alamo flew half-mast in her memory. The fourth child, Mary William, was born in 1850, married her brother-in-law's first cousin, a young lawyer named John Simeon. They lived in the far west Texas town of Abilene, and after John's death, Mary became the postmistress of Abilene and died in 1930. Her younger sister, Antoinette Nettie, was born in 1852 and became an accomplished poet. Her poem, The Flag of a Single Star, was made into a song and sung by Texas schoolchildren at the turn of the century. Like her three older sisters, Nettie attended the Baylor Female College, which is now the University of Mary Hardin Baylor. She married Dr. William L. Bringhurst, a Texas A&M professor, and was a prominent leader in the Daughters of the Republic of Texas, serving as state historian. According to one story, one day Nettie was reminiscing at the Alamo. She touched a table that had once belonged to her family when a visitor admonished her. You shouldn't lean on the table, he said. It's a souvenir of General Sam Houston. Nettie was quick to reply, So am I. Tragically, Nettie died in a car accident in 1932. Her funeral was held at the Alamo, where her casket was surrounded by the Six Flags of Texas. After Sam Jr. was born, old Sam had hoped to have a passel of strapping boys. But for 11 years, Margaret kept giving him girls. Sam was a loving and doting father for his flock of daughters, but in 1854, a second son was finally born. Now, we'll get back to the life of Andrew Jackson Houston in a moment, but before we do, there's a third son to talk about, William Rogers Houston, born in 1858. Willie was a sickly child, but he grew into a strapping, stout young man. He was nine when his mother died, and he was raised by his oldest sister, Nanny. 
He later attended Salado College, as well as Texas University in Georgetown. Of all the children, Willie inherited his father's affinity for and appreciation of Native American culture. He became a special officer of the Indian Service and for several decades represented the U.S. government to the Indian reservations in Oklahoma. In 1920, while on a mission in Hugo, Oklahoma, he had a heart attack and died. He was the only Houston child who never married, but remained close to his brothers and sisters his whole life. When he died, a close friend wrote about him, quote, There was so much romance in his life, and I like to associate his death with his life's work. It is fitting that he should die in serving the remnant of that great American race with whom his father spent so much time in service years before. The Lives of the sixth and eighth children of Sam Houston and Margaret Houston, both boys are probably the most famous and notable, and indeed in some ways the most notorious. It seems that each of the eight Houston children inherited some part of their parents' natures. And if that's the case, then clearly Andy and Temple inherited the famous Sam Houston temperament in more ways than one. Andrew Jackson Houston, born in 1854, was named after his father's friend and mentor. Young Andy was just five years old when his family moved into the governor's mansion in Austin, and most contemporary accounts seem to indicate that Andy regarded the mansion, and indeed the entire state capitol, as his private playground. There's a famous story that someone locked the doors of the Senate chambers and wouldn't let the legislators out. The angry senators had to yell out of the windows until someone could come and open the doors. Governor Houston knew who his suspect was and hauled little Andy into his office, where after a tearful confession, he procured the stolen key to the Senate chambers. Why was a rambunctious five-year-old boy rambling around the state capitol? Because the governor had to take his boy to work with him. They can't handle him at home. The Civil War ended Andy's antics as Houston was removed from office for refusing to swear an oath to the Confederacy. The Houston family moved to their home in Cedar Point near Baytown and then later to Huntsville. There, when Andy was nine, his father died, followed a few years later by his mother. Like the rest, Andy and his siblings moved in with Nanny, and there he grew up. He aspired to a career in the military like his father. He'd gained an appointment to West Point, but ill health forced him to drop out. Then he attended Baylor University like his older brother Sam and studied law in Tyler. If he couldn't be a soldier like his father, though, he would be a politician. He participated in local and state politics, serving as a district court clerk, an officer in the Texas Guard, and even a U.S. Marshal. He helped raise and organize a cavalry troop that became part of Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders during the Spanish-American War. He also ran unsuccessfully for governor of Texas in 1892, 1910, and 1918. Houston was an ardent supporter of prohibition, women's suffrage, and, unfortunately, segregation. Later in life, he became a historian, publishing a book about his father's role in the Texas Revolution. And he was honorary superintendent of the San Jacinto State Park, working hard to ensure that the site was preserved for future generations. In 1941, at the age of 87, he was remarkably appointed to the U.S. Senate seat vacated upon the death of Senator Morris Shepard by Texas Governor W. Lee Pappy O'Daniel. O'Daniel desired the seat for himself, but he wanted to appoint someone to hold it who wouldn't run against him in the special election that was coming. The elderly son of the Texas legend seemed to be the perfect choice. At the time, Houston was the oldest person. At that time, Houston became the oldest person ever to serve as a U.S. Senator. 
Despite his daughters urging him not to serve, he made the trip to Washington, D.C. and took his seat. He attended one committee meeting, and then on June 26, 1941, he fell ill and died. He was buried in Austin at the State Cemetery, the last remaining child of Sam and Margaret Houston. The youngest Houston child is, in many ways, the most famous and interesting. Temple Lee Houston, named after his maternal grandfather, was born on August 12, 1860. He was the first child born in the Texas governor's mansion. He never really knew his father, who died when he was three, and by the time he was seven, Temple's mother had died as well. Of all the Houston children, Temple seems to have inherited most of his father's flamboyant temperament, oratory brilliance, and often impetuous nature. When he was just 13, Temple left his sister Nanny's home to join a cattle drive, though some sources seem to indicate that Nanny signed him up to join the drive. Whatever the case, over the next four years, he also worked as a clerk on a Mississippi riverboat and then traveled to Washington, D.C., where he became a page in the U.S. Senate. In 1877, Temple returned back to Texas in order to attend the Agricultural and Mechanical College in College Station, which today is known as Texas A&M. He later transferred to Baylor University, where he graduated in 1880 with honors in law. At the age of 20, he passed the bar and became the youngest attorney in Texas. This was the beginning of his life as a frontier lawyer and a darn good one at that. He served as district attorney for Brazoria County and then Wheeler County in the Panhandle and served as a state senator for far west Texas all before the age of 25. But it was as a private practice lawyer in the Panhandle town of Mobiti that he gained the most fame. For more than two decades, Temple gained a reputation as the Southwest's most brilliant and eccentric trial lawyer. Cowboys, murderers, gunfighters, and cattle thieves, as well as the Santa Fe Railroad, were among his clients. Like his father, Temple had a way with words, and he wasn't afraid to use his appearance and reputation to his advantage. He was tall, dashingly handsome, had shoulder-length hair, and wore impeccably tailored clothes. Uh, one description said he wore rattlesnake neckties. He was once described by another attorney as a, quote, man who can strut sitting down. He also cultivated the image and reputation of a gunfighter wearing a pair of pearl-handled colts about town and into court. Another contemporary wrote, quote, Temple Houston stays alive because he is very fast on the draw. He has winged several bad men and killed two or three, and now he is a man to be feared. <laughs> on one occasion, he is said to have fired his pearl-handled colt during the summation, thus causing the, quote, jury to mingle with the crowd as both terrified groups fled the proceedings. That stunt earned him a fine from the judge, but a new trial for his client. Apparently, Temple considered that to be a fair trade. <laughs> yeah, that might be a mistrial. <laughs> the simple joy of frontier justice. <laughs> right. Well, once, once, one yeah. account of that said that he said, do I have your attention? <laughs> it, it, was a, it was a case where the, the person he was defending clearly killed an Indian because he told people, I'm going to go out and kill an Indian. If you find one, if, if you find one with a bullet in his head, it's mine. And so the only way that Temple thought to win the case was to shoot up the courtroom. You know what, Sean? Brilliant. You're out of order. The town of Mobiti was described at the time as an open door to hell. And when Temple first arrived there, he himself wrote to his young wife, Flora, that it was, quote, a bald-headed whiskey town with few virtuous women. 
The irony is that his most famous trial, which occurred in 1899, involved him successfully defending a prostitute by arguing that she was a, quote, soiled dove who had been forced into her circumstances by unscrupulous and wicked men. His speech to the jury is still studied by law students and is considered a masterpiece of extemporaneous speaking. There's another story of this time in Mobiti, though, that can't be as readily verified. It's said that Temple beat famed gunfighters Billy the Kid and Bat Masterson in a shooting match. Unfortunately, this story isn't true. Billy the Kid reportedly died in 1881, two years before Temple set up shop in the Panhandle. Reportedly. In the early 1890s, Temple moved his family to the Oklahoma town of Woodward, where he set up a new law practice. He enhanced his reputation for eccentricity and gunfighting when he shot up a crooked saloon and at one point survived an assassination attempt when the bullet got caught in the law book in his pocket. He ran unsuccessfully for Oklahoma governor, and in 1905 he died of a brain hemorrhage. Flags were put to half-mast in his honor in Oklahoma and in Texas upon his death. In the 20th century, he remained a popular figure, with Edna Ferber modeling the main character on her novel Cimarron on him. He was played by Richard Dix in the 1931 version of that novel and by Glenn Ford in 1960. In the early 1960s, there was even a TV show called Temple Houston, and that aired on NBC starring Jeffrey Hunter of early Star Trek fame. That's a remarkable uh, brood that uh, Houston produced. No, he's saying quite a family. Yeah, the amazing thing is for the time, you know, they, they had eight children after Sam was 50 years old, uh, but they had eight children that survived. You know, in, in that time it was, you know, it was pretty mar- remarkable that none of their children died in infancy or in childbirth. So... Pretty amazing, and then they all, they almost all of them other than Temple lived to be really, really, really old. <laughs> the Temple was the, yeah, Temple was the youngest when he died, and he was, uh, uh, let's see, 18, he was f- 45. Uh, so the rest of them lived into their 70s, 80s, and 90s. Well, you know, it's a, he was pretty tough stock, uh, old Sam. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's nice to see that the, you know that the kids of someone famous achieve something famous. You know that he like oh it wasn't just like they didn't turn out to be like weird trust fund babies or like total burnouts or anything. They all actually had very accomplished careers and interesting disciplines, uh, and all really seemed to to keep Texas first and foremost in everything they did. That's true. Um, I I like that each of them kind of inherited a piece of their 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 mother and their father's natures. Um, the girls seem to all have become pretty maternal, but also very like witty and talented, uh, in terms of being scholars or poets or writers. Um, and then the boys, you know, Sam Jr. seemed to inherit a lot of, lot from his mother, but he also inherited his father's writing ability. But then the other three boys really took aspects of Sam Houston's character and really amplified them in a lot of ways, even though the youngest boys didn't really know their father too well. Can you imagine, though, like, I, it's an interesting thing like, that the, that Sam and, and then uh, his wife died, and then having to take in all these kids that aren't, that are just your brothers and sisters. I mean, it really was, yeah. uh, oh, what was the NBA, NBC show with Scott Wolf? 
Party of oh, Five. Uh, party yeah, of this five. was like Party of 200. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nanny, her firstborn child, was born right before her mother died. And so she had a newborn, and then she got her five youngest siblings, ranging in age from three or ranging age from seven all the way up to the you know early teenager. Mm. So pretty amazing that <laughs> she just took them all well, in. I mean, good good for good for you. That's what Nanny. family did though. Uh, yeah, yeah, and then and then you know Maggie took in her older brother um, when his so Sam Sam Junior he moved in with Na- Maggie when his wife passed away uh, and. Uh, it it kind of broke his spirit, and so he moved in with her, uh, and that's where he spent the rest of his days. But yeah, so the, it was a very close family. They, um, everything that I've read about them said that you know at least the the seven oldest children. And see, I couldn't find a lot about Temple being close to his family, uh, but you know w- Willie was definitely very close to his brothers and sisters, and the and the girls were all close to their their each other. Um, what I find more most remarkable is, you know, in the case of Andy and, and his sisters, is that in the 1930s and 40s, or, you know, 1930s at least, in, in, in 1941 and eve of World War II, you still have the children of the Patriarch of Texas, essentially, still walking around and still playing an active part in the life of Texas. And that, to me, is pretty remarkable. It, it's... You know, we we will ne- we we will never experience that kind of thing. But there, you know, there may be people that are still alive that remember, you know, Andy Houston and that remember um, Natty Houston and 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 Maggie Houston. You know, that, that were that lived number many many years into the twentieth century. That's super impressive. So if you're going to be a very famous yeah. and important person, you need to wait till you're incredibly old to have a whole <laughs> bunch of children. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I definitely want us to do an episode on Pappy O'Daniel. Um, that story with Pappy O'Daniel and Andy is pretty amazing. Uh, that you know, he wanted to be the senator, but he was a sitting governor, and he couldn't really just appoint himself. Uh, Gee, it why not? People angry. <laughs> but but it's pretty amazing in that you know when when Andy did die and they had the special election, it's it's a it's an a little known fact of history. Um, and, and, and Pappy O'Daniel, if you've seen the, the movie Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? The character that Charles Durning plays, who's called Pappy O'Daniel, is b- literally based on the Texas governor, Pappy O'Daniel, who became famous first for having a radio show with the Light Biscuit Doughboys. Um, but at any rate, the election, the runoff election, or the, I'm sorry, the special election for the vacant U.S. Senate seat was the only election that that. LBJ ever lost because LBJ ran against Pappy O'Daniel for that Senate seat and he lost because Pappy O'Daniel cheated and LBJ never never made that mistake again <laughs> he, he learned he learned the trick of dead people voting for him from Pappy O'Daniel that wraps things up for today you can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com we'd love to hear from you so like and share us on Facebook Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. Why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two ends. And I'm Scotticus. We know you love this show. We know you love the great state of Texas and everything Sam Houston has done for all of us. So do your duty. And get out there and leave a review on iTunes, because that really helps us out. And spread the word. Tell your friends. 
And if you'd like to support the show financially, please visit patreon.com slash Podcast, where you too can become a come-and-take-it Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.